Once again, we welcome you back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. I'm Brian Hyde. I'm happy to welcome Ethan Brown back to the show. Ethan's been on here before, but uh, uh, he's a Young Voices contributor and also the host and uh, creator of The Sweaty Penguin, a comedy climate podcast. And uh, we've got some climate-related stuff to talk about today. Ethan, good to have you on the show. Good to be here, Brian. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. I, I guess I shouldn't say strictly climate related because we're going to talk about overpopulation and um, and how uh, I, this it's I used to think that this was kind of a recent thing. I remember as a, as a first grader back in the 1970s being told, well, now, you know, if, if we don't if we upset the balance of nature, you know, it's going to destroy the population and so forth. But actually, it sounds like people have been warning about too many people for a lot longer than that. I mean, a couple hundred years at least. Yeah, upsetting the balance of nature is one thing, but people don't have to do that. And this does. It goes back very far. The point that I reference in my article is 1798, I believe. There was an essay by British economist Thomas Malthus talking about how food supply grows linearly, population grows exponentially, and so at some point population growth will outpace food growth and the world will starve. And of course, we've seen population growing fast. It surpassed 8 billion people on November 15th. And we have not seen everyone starve. There have been cases of famine around the world, of course, due to wars or natural disasters or what have climate issues, that sort of stuff that often get attributed to overpopulation. That just isn't really the right thing to blame. Well, I'm, I'm glad that uh, the Malthusians so far haven't been right, but it hasn't stopped people. I mean, Paul Ehrlich, uh, he's still around, and I think he was one of the ones back in the uh, 60s and 70s saying, overpopulation, this is going to this is going to result in mass starvation. It's going to result in, you know, the destruction of humanity. So, um, I know your article is is, uh, is taking a, a, a counter point of view on this, saying overpopulation isn't the issue, and saying so is wrong and damaging. So, can we first establish why why did they believe that that overpopulation was going to be the issue? You you mentioned uh, Malthus saying that food production is linear, uh, population growth is is exponential. Was it simply mathematics, but did they get the math wrong in some regard? I think they did. We can go even more basic than that though, right? Um, if you think about there being more people, there are more mouths to feed, more extrapolate and more people, we're going to be creating a lot more environmental damage. But what that misses, and what I think Thomas Malthus missed, is the environment is incredible at regenerating itself. A fish can lay a thousand eggs, an apple can turn into a whole new tree. So to me, food production does not grow linearly. Obviously, we have a limit as to how much land we can use, but at the same time, humans have made incredible innovations in agriculture, looking at fertilizers, pesticides, uh, we can go down a long list. So I think really the issue becomes, how do we manage ourselves? How do we do this in a way that prevent, prevents our environment from degrading too much? Because I, I mean, I'm a climate person. These are real issues that we're dealing with, climate change, biodiversity, loss, pollution, but it's not necessarily the fault of there being too many people. It's just how we manage ourselves. I'd like to get your reaction to an observation that I just heard about just a couple of weeks ago. And it was someone making the case that um, actually 
the more humans, the better in the sense that that's more minds working on the problem of how to better manage ourselves, how to make uh, better innovation in, in how we uh, grow foods, how we distribute foods and so forth. And I have to say, to me, that was a pretty convincing argument. Have you heard similar arguments? What, uh, what are your thoughts on that? I have. There's a formula that some people use, and I don't love the formula, but it's called IPAT, and it's basically impact equals population times affluence times technology. In other words, the amount of environmental impact a society will have is the number of people times uh, the amount that each person, sorry, how do we frame this? The amount of person, the amount that each person emits times uh, the amount that technology can kind of lower those emissions. That poor way of explaining it, but it's right after the holidays. So <laughs> basically, <laughs> Um, what we have there is this idea that there are three independent variables. And that's why I don't like the form that we see. Both are very often developing countries. And so when you add more people to that society, they might be having lower affluence and less individual impact than, say, you or I in the United States. Um, but then to your point, at the same time, technology is one where we need a lot of people. If you have more people, you have more minds, and then you can lower the uh, impacts of any given activity by making better technologies to do it. So in both of those cases, affluence and population have this inverse relationship. Technology and population have this inverse relationship. So again, I think maybe a more complicated way of looking at it, but I think you're absolutely right. There is something to be said for the fact that more people can help rather than hurt. And and you point out in your article that when people take it upon themselves, for instance, just the, the issue of overpopulation, sometimes that can go in some pretty dark directions. For instance, you reference China's one-child policy. I'm not even sure where that stands right now. Would you mind bringing me up to speed? I know that China had this policy at one time. Is it still uh, an enforced thing that you can only have one child and not more than that? The policy is not in place the same way it was anymore, but we can go back to 1980. Um, so China had this one-child policy. They were worried that the fast population growth would lock the country into future poverty. But this policy led to forced abortions, the confiscation of children by authorities, and a horrifying resurgence of female infanticide to the point that by 2016, China had 30 million more men than women. That is just terrifying to me. And this gender imbalance also leads to increased crime and violence in the country. So I believe it was around 2016, they upped it to two kids, then by 2021, they upped it to three kids, but the psychological effect of this policy has really taken hold. Today, it is very rare to see families of two or three children in China, and that it presented a lot of problems, a lot of scary problems. So I do not think the United States is a more idea of overpopulation, the higher the chances that we see something damaging like that. Okay, I appreciate that explanation. You also point out that uh, there is still a trend where, you know, overpopulation or at least concentrations of population can pose some very real problems. For instance, uh, you point out in 1950, 29% of people lived in cities. That number is going much, much higher. Why is it that more and more people are going to the cities? There's so many different reasons. And 
in my work as a climate person, I find it interesting to see how climate drives people into cities. A lot of these agricultural communities in rural areas are finding crop failures increasing due to droughts, due to extreme weather, due to natural disasters. And when their crops fail and they think we just can't do this anymore, they very often go into the city and see if they can find a job there. Obviously, there's so many other reasons, but that's one that jumps out to me as a climate person. And as we see all these people coming into cities, we start to see issues bigger and around them. And obviously, as you're losing agricultural workers, then you start to get questions about food supply. So a lot of different directions that that conversation goes. But again, it's not the fault of how many people there are, it's how we're managing ourselves, it's how we're distributing ourselves. So if we're thinking about this strategically, if we're aware that people are going to migrate into cities, and we also know that a lot of cities are on coasts and there are hurricanes and sea level rise and stuff there. So if we're thinking about all these issues now, we can start to get in front of these problems. So again, not the fault of there being too many people, just how we manage ourselves. And and can I ask you to unpack for me just a little bit, what, when we you talk about how we manage ourselves. What are some of the facets of life that that includes? So I like to think of what's called sustainable development, which is how do we grow our economy, innovate, create new technologies without degrading our environment faster than it can regenerate. So there's so many different forms that that can take. That can be looking at ways to grow food more sustainably. That can be looking at uh, sustainable fashion that can be, <laughs> we can think of any product we want and how we can make that more sustainable. And that's something that on my podcast, The Sweaty Penguin, we actually take an individual specific topic each week and say, how do we make this better? Or how is this being affected by climate change? And how do we pull through that? Many different directions that you can go there. But ultimately, the idea of sustainable development is what gets me so excited about working in climate and looking into these solutions, because we can grow the environment or grow the economy and help our environment at the same time. So it's really not an either or proposition. There, there are more options that, that we can address. If we're creative, it certainly does not have to be either or. Okay, very good. Again, we are talking with Ethan Brown. He is a contributor for Young Voices. He has a BA in Environmental Analysis and Policy from Boston University and is the host of the Sweaty Penguin Comedy Climate Podcast. Where can people follow you on social media? And I always encourage people to also check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash the sweaty penguin. There you can get merch, bonus content, get questions moved to the front of the line to be answered on the show, all that good stuff. Okay. Thanks, Ethan. Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year, Brian. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Happy to welcome Micah Safeston back to the program. Micah, I know that uh, you've been on the show before, but for the sake of people who are meeting you for the first time, would you mind just telling us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm a writer, a contributing writer at, at Young Voices. I uh, write mostly about uh, natural resources policy and um, particularly the policies impacting the American West. I write a lot about water in the West. Um, and uh, and other other natural resources related policy issues and anything else that's on my mind. Very good. I'm looking at an article that you've written about uh, uh, cultivated meat, not plant based right. meat, is the future of environmentally conscious food. And I, I'll admit, look, I'm a carnivore. 
I love to smoke food. I love to barbecue and, and grill. And so I'm very, I've always been very um, skeptical about uh, even plant-based meats. But talk to me about cultivated meat, because this is something I'm not as familiar with. But uh, you make a pretty strong case. This is actually a pretty viable way that people could continue to eat meat without resorting to more of a plant-based substitute. That's right. And, and I'm the same way. I, uh, I like to eat meat of all kinds. And uh, and I don't think that uh, we should have to sacrifice uh, what what we love in, in this regard. Um, cultivated meat is different than plant-based meat. We, we see plant-based ba- plant meats um, all over the supermarket today. Impossible meat is, is the most popular alternative. Uh, at, cultivated meat is different, though. Pl- plant-based meat is plant-based. Cultivated meat is meat that has been literally grown in a lab, cultivated. And it is it starts with a, a biopsy from from a healthy animal, like a, a cow or a chicken. And then they they literally grow that that small speck of, of real meat uh, in, in, in a lab. And it's it it is meat. It it, it is chemically the, the exact same thing as what we eat when we eat a hamburger. Um, there is a very significant hiccup, though, and that is that it is, it is ridiculously expensive, mm. I mean, uh, pro- prohibitively expensive. We're talking um, probably in the neighborhood of four to $600 a, a pound, or excuse me, four to $600 for a, a, a burger, um, over $2,000 for a pound. Yeah, that uh, I mean, look, I, I'm I'm open to alternatives as long as it's real meat. Especially, I mean, if you could come up with something a good quality lab-grown ribeye steak, count me in. But sure. if if it's going to cost as much as a tank of gas, I don't know. <laughs> that, that's right. So so and, and the point I make in the piece is that um, we, we we shouldn't be asked to be buying this now. That's that's absurd. Um, but what we should have is, is confidence that that price will go down um, if the product is good enough. So if the product is good enough, then there will be eccentric, uh, wealthy individuals and investors who will who will uh, invest in this technology, and the price will go down. I mean, it, if if the product is good, that's what will happen. Um, and and we don't see that with the uh, the plant based alternatives. With the plant based alternatives, they're <clears throat> a little bit more expensive, but for the most part, th- there isn't a significant difference on price. Um, but with plant based alternatives, they're not good. Uh, they they don't, they're not a a an acceptable alternative to to most consumers, myself included. But with this, the cultivated meat is kind of something that's on the horizon. It's not here yet because that price is just is outrageous. But um, it, it's it's on the horizon, and, and we should look forward to it. Yeah, I mean, because I, I hear the the talk, and I, some of it I take seriously, and some of it I dismiss. But you know, you're going to eat bugs, and you're going to be happy with it. And I'm like, I will not be happy with eating bugs, not after that's knowing right. you know what a real burger tastes like. But I'm open to the ideas. What is the the biggest holdup in terms of of scaling um, cultivated meat production? You know that that would would help to bring that that price down. I mean, is is it just simply that there there aren't enough facilities? Does it, does it require laboratory settings in order to to produce it uh, properly? It does. It 
the uh the, the labs that this meat is grown in they they resemble um like where you know uh, breweries <laughs> and, and these large vats where where the, the meat is uh, is cultivated and it is a question of scale um a question of of not having um not having enough uh, of a of a the, the initial investment that they just there just needs to be more uh, happening for a for them to turn a profit at a reasonable price but to turn a profit now is just an outrageous price point and in the, in the article i what i uh, compare it to is actually televisions which is kind of goofy because it's just very different uh, two very different products but i point out that in 20 years ago a 50 inch flat screen tv costs upwards of $10,000. I mean, just something that uh, very few people could afford. Now it's something that you can you, you can find a 50-inch flat-screen TV for less than $300 on Black Friday. And, and the reason that that price went down is because initial investors, in wealthy eccentrics, had the, the money, had the disposable income to, to uh, get started early. To, to invest early, and then that the product was able to scale. And I think the same thing could happen for cultivated meat, if it's any good. Okay, so I have to ask, is Bill Gates one of the early investors? Because this seems like he wants me to eat bugs. Yeah, um, the folks at, uh, at Real Clear Energy put the uh, put a picture of Bill Gates as the, the header photo, and I, I'm not sure exactly why, because I'm actually not certain that's something he's involved in. Um, I, as far as I was aware, he was more involved with the plant-based alternatives. Um, so I, I thought that was a little strange. I didn't choose that picture. Okay. No, I just, I, and the only reason I ask, I, I do believe, like what you point out, that there are people out there who are farsighted enough and wealthy enough and thinking, you know what, I'm, I'm in. You know, I know it's not there yet, right. but I'm, I'm willing to get those wheels spinning. And, and, you know, 20 years down the road, this may be, you know, the, the we may look back and go, why did we ever, you know, Go to all the trouble of ranching. You point out in your article, yeah. how many calories is it, does it take to produce one calorie? You know, in in the traditional form of, of raising meat, twenty five calories. Yeah, uh, twenty five calories needed to produce one calorie of beef. And that's very inefficient. Um, and 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 I should also point out that um, I, I think a common response might be, well, why why is this even necessary? Why why do we need to even think about this as a you know, traditional beef is perfectly fine. Traditional meat is perfectly fine, and um, and, and the truth is, it's not. <clears throat> it's uh, the the agricultural, uh, sorry, the environmental impact of agriculture is is pretty substantial, um, and and we we have to be taking that seriously. And and um, but then just the inefficiency of traditional agriculture, as you point out, twenty five calories it takes. We we. You know, we, we grow food in my home state of Utah. Most agriculture, most growing agriculture, most crops are are crops that are fed to animals we eat. And and that we can skip a step there through cultivated meat um, if it can be affordable and if it could, if it is good. Yeah. And ultimately, the consumers are the ones who are going to be, you know, they're the ones who have to be convinced. If you can show them that, look, this is viable, it's actually tasty or it's good for you and it's affordable. Um, you know, I, I'm a diehard barbecue aficionado, but I would get on board. I'm, I'm 
headstrong, but I'm not that headstrong. Make it affordable. You know, if I if I could enjoy a ribeye steak for five bucks again, wow. You know, count me in. I don't care if yeah. it was raised on the hoof or if it was raised in a lab. You know, or grown in a lab. That is. Yeah, we we've tried to scale up agriculture, and in fact, we we didn't just try; we succeeded. And but we're now seeing kind of the limits of that. Uh, is my concern is that there there isn't um, there isn't much room to scale up agriculture more, but there's a lot of room in something like this cultivated meat because agriculture is so intensive. It requires so many resources. Okay, again, we are talking with Micah Safeston. He works as a communications and outreach coordinator at the Utah Water Research Laboratory and is also a contributor for Young Voices. Micah, where can people follow you on social media? Just on, on Twitter, um, at Micah, M-I-C-A-H-R, then Safeston, S-A-F-S-T-E-N. And once again, we are back. This is Moving Forward with Young Voices. Happy to welcome Roy Matthews back to the show. He is a writer for Young Voices, a graduate of Bates College, and a former Fulbright awardee and foreign, foreign policy fellow at Common Sense Society. Roy, great to catch up with you. Happy New Year, by the way. Yeah, Happy New Year. hope you had a great Christmas and an even better New Year. It has been fantastic so far. And and I know this is kind of a weighty topic. I think you, you drew the straw for talking for one of the weightier topics today. I know that uh, energy concerns are very much on the mind of many of the countries in Europe, particularly NATO members. And I'm looking at an article that uh, you had written a, a little while back about Nord Stream 3, NATO must guard against Russian sabotage in Norway's pipeline network. I haven't heard a lot about the Nord Stream pipeline since uh, somehow it, uh, I don't know, blew up uh, a couple months ago. But can you bring us up to right. speed? What do we know since then as far as what happened to the pipeline? Do we have any idea who it was who uh, may have damaged this pipeline? Right. So it's it's been a while. Um, the Nord Stream 2, the pipeline connecting uh, Russia to Germany, um, the natural gas pipeline exploded on September 26th. And um, Swedish, Norwegian, and Danish investigators have been um, investigating as to why that is. And uh, Swedish authorities announced that they actually found um, residue from explosive materials um, on the pipeline. So this is looking like a coordinated act of industrial sabotage to send a message to um, Sweden, Finland, those two new NATO members, and to Germany that um, Russia is not going to take a NATO expansion lying down. So Nord Stream 3, then it, that's a different pipeline. And, and am I to assume that's the pipeline connecting Russia to Norway? So the Norwegians have a pretty extensive um, offshore gas pipeline network. It's about 5,500 miles of pipeline. And the reason I titled my article Nord Stream 3 is now that Russia has stopped uh, exporting natural gas to Germany, the, uh, Europe, the uh, EU's uh, largest economy and its, and its most energy-hungry economy, the uh, Norwegians have stepped up and are increasing their exports of natural gas and oil through their pipeline network to Germany. Um, the Norwegian pipeline network has three major pipelines that connect uh, the Norwegian gas fields to, um, to Germany. And 
Nord Stream 3 is sort of a, a warning to if if Russia or, or whomever has um, has sabotaged the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, that this sort of industrial sabotage targeting energy infrastructure could really put a hurt on both Norway's economy, Germany's economy and the world um, and the world's economy. Wow. Now, of course, any time, you know, something like this is either a possibility or a reality, um, we have to ask the question, qui bono, who benefits from it? Would this benefit Russia or would it benefit other players? Russia would stand to benefit the most um, since they have lost that income stream from European countries refusing to buy um, their gas. And this is sort of a, a way for Russia to impose consequences on these new NATO members, particularly Sweden and Finland, um, since they are in the Baltic Sea. By releasing all this methane into the water, there could be environmental consequences. There's already um, uh, several members, I believe, the Swedish parliament have called this environmental terrorism um, because it's essentially releasing all these greenhouse gases into the atmosphere uh, on purpose. It also sends a message to Germany um, who is already having to reopen uh, old coal-fired power plants and um, ration their energy resources because they were so dependent on Russian natural gas. Um, so it sends a message to the new NATO members that Russia still has the ability to hurt them and their economy. And it also sends a message to Germany um, stating that we have you in a very vulnerable position. And if you continue to support um, the Ukrainians or lend support um, to their conflict, um, it will only get worse for you. Dang, those those stakes are, are way higher than than I had originally thought. How would they go about protecting these uh, these undersea uh, pipelines? I mean, if, if NATO decides, OK, you're right, this is this is something that that is deserving of our protection. Uh, that sounds like an awful lot of uh, territory to cover, and it's not easily covered being underwater. Right. Uh, you're absolutely right. The um, the Norwegian gas line, gas pipeline network um, covers roughly the distance from Oslo, the capital of Norway, all the way to Bangkok, Thailand. So it's a massive, massive network. Um, credit where credit is due, the Norwegians have deployed most of their military assets to conduct inspections of these offshore oil rigs. Um, the Navy has been patrolling most of the offshore oil rigs for suspicious activity um, and monitoring these pipelines with sonar. Um, and generally patrolling to keep any any vessel that doesn't have authority to be um, near these pipelines and near these offshore rigs away from them. Um, it's difficult because uh, Russia has used uh, research vessels, Arctic research vessels, as um, cover for maybe, I think, five years now. To, um, to be able to analyze this infrastructure, find out any weak points, and mainly just get intelligence on where these um, specific assets are. So it's difficult, but the Norwegians have really taken a lead in securing um, what is a vital national interest for them since the Norwegian um, oil and gas sector uh, underpins a $1.1 trillion sovereign wealth fund for their country, which is why their citizens enjoy such a, uh, a generous welfare state. So I have to ask, besides the, the natural gas and oil pipelines, um, what other assets are, are undersea? I'm sure there, there's other uh, there's communications lines and so forth that, that would likewise be at risk. Are, are, are they vulnerable? Have they been attacked as well? Absolutely. No, you're spot on. The um, fiber optic, optic cables um, are the main source of connectivity that Norway uses to 
um, keep in touch with this uh, archipelago. It's called Svalbard, which is north of Norway, deep in the Arctic Ocean. Uh, Russia was accused back in January of 2022 of playing a role in the severing of the of one of two undersea fiber optic cables that connected Svalbard to Norway and to the um, the EU mainland. Uh, why this is so important is because um, normally when a fiber optic cable is damaged, it's due to fishing trawling ships that drag their nets along the seafloor and move the optic, damage it, get it out of position. This was completely the opposite. It was a clean cut right through the cable. Um, and a Russian research vessel who has been known to sort of linger in ports studying infrastructure in the past um, and that has the capability to deploy uh, undersea drones or submersibles, what, what you think of when you see uh, maybe a documentary on the, the Mariana Trench, um, deploy these submersibles to reach that depth of the ocean and study um, the fiber optic cable and see where potentially it could be cut. Um, so those are some crucial pieces of infrastructure, too. You think about all the financial transactions, all the trillions of dollars of economic activity that runs on the Internet now. And one cut to a specific fiber optic cable network could could bring down or freeze an economy for days or potentially weeks. Yikes. Well, it it sounds like uh, something that's that's very uh, much worth keeping an eye on. Now, I have to ask, as far as those energy needs, are there other regions of the world, other uh, energy-producing countries that could step in and fill that void uh, if Russian energy is not available to these NATO countries? And, and if so, who would that be? And if, if they're not doing it, why not? Potentially. That's a really good question. So, I wrote... Oh, a piece a couple months ago about the potential for um, Western Africa, Western African nations um, and their desire to build a pipeline network going through Morocco and through Algeria to deliver um, oil and gas that's in uh, sub-Saharan Africa, Burkina Faso, um, Ghana, that region. The only problem with that is, is that currently there's not a lot of existing infrastructure. And I believe Burkina Faso had a, a military coup, coup and uh, out, some violent outbreaks um, just this year. So instability remains a problem. There's also the problem of Algeria and Morocco. They are huge rivals in the region um, due to some uh, past Cold War, um, Cold War conflict. So that could potentially be a solution. But right now, Norway has the infrastructure, they have the resources, and they have the money. Um, so they're stepping up to fill this void. Okay. Well, I appreciate you bringing us up to speed on uh, a really timely topic. I mean, there. The, the thing to me that's unnerving is there's there's so many things that could just add to the volatility of that region where there's already, you know, ongoing bloodshed right. and conflict. Uh, but uh, now that winter's here, I mean, we're, we're seeing people suffering for high costs of heating their homes and, and uh, rationing of energy and so forth. It just seems like this could very easily uh, notch it up a little bit further. Right. Where can no, people... You're absolutely right. Where can people follow you? Where can, where can they... Uh, follow your writing, for instance? Sure. I put uh, most of my pieces on, on Twitter, and that's uh, at your boy underscore Roy 98. Try not to take myself too seriously with that, <laughs> with that, uh, with that username. Um, and that's where you can find most of my writing. Okay. It's an easy one to remember. Uh, Roy Matthews, great to catch up with you. Have a happy new year, and I hope we talk again in the coming year. Will do. Have a happy new year, too. Oh, 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 oh,
are back. This is Moving Forward with Young Voices. It's our fourth and final segment today. Happy to welcome Gary Frankel. Uh, you may uh, read his byline as Gary and Frankel. Uh, he is a Young Voices contributor and particularly tied into educational issues. And I'm leaving a few things out here, but Gary, I'm going to ask you, for the sake of people meeting you for the first time, tell us about the hats you wear. <laughs> well, thanks for having me on again, Brian. But I wear quite a few hats. Uh, most of my work focuses on uh, where American political theory meets education policy, sometimes just bridging entirely into one or the other. But a lot of my work focuses on some of the nonsense that's going through our education system these days, because unfortunately, there's quite a bit of it. Yeah. And I, I'm looking at an article you wrote for the Canon online that, uh, you know, I've been paying attention to libs of TikTok for some time just because uh, there's some really interesting content on there, to put it mildly. But uh, your article is why educators should quit TikTok. And I'm I'm going to just show my age here. I'm not on TikTok. I have no intention of going on TikTok. But I understand if you want to communicate with a younger audience, that's the place to go. Yeah. And the temptation for educators and schools in particular to jump on the TikTok bandwagon is entirely understandable because you're trying to teach kids how to read and how to do math. And to a certain extent, you have to meet them where they're at with your examples, your references, etc. So TikTok is where a lot of that is happening and the impulse makes sense. But even beyond some of the stuff you see on libs of TikTok, which is admittedly pretty bad, it's the stuff that doesn't get quite as much coverage on TikTok that's truly damaging to schools. Give me some examples of, of what that looks like. Yeah. Um, about a year ago, there was a challenge going around TikTok that dared kids to threaten to commit heinous and violent acts against their schools. Now, these were threats, obviously, so there was no intentionality to actually commit any of these actions. But, you know, the school doesn't know that. Taxpayers don't know that. Districts don't know that. So the result was that a lot of schools were closed. There were delays. Um, more than a dozen kids around the country got arrested. In my hometown of uh, Frisco, Texas, uh, six kids got arrested uh, for one of these threats. And sometimes these challenges do have people carrying them out. There was one a while back that asked kids to damage their school bathroom, sometimes to the tune of tens of thousands of dollars in overall damage. And the repairs for that are coming directly out of taxpayer pockets. So I'm not sure being the fun teacher and using TikTok in class is worth all of these external effects, the baggage that comes with integrating TikTok into uh, the classroom and child development more broadly. So I have to ask, where where do those challenges originate? Is it just something that organically springs up among the kids, or can can they draw lines back to to somebody else who's you know planting ideas in their heads? Yeah, it's it's a bit of both. Most of the challenges are pretty organic, where this one rich kid with a lot of time. Um, comes up with one of these things, challenges other people to do it. And if they have enough followers and they show themselves actually doing the challenge, uh, people are going to jump on board and start playing along. In other cases, it's not quite the same as the challenges, but it's related, is you see unsavory political actors using TikTok's 
addictability as well as the bandwagon effect in order to get kids to help them out. Uh, this has become a big problem here in Texas because the drug cartels in Mexico have gotten very, very good at using TikTok. And they use the app in order to recruit unsuspecting American teens to transport human cargo, sometimes drugs, uh, sometimes money all over the state. And most of these kids have no idea what they're getting into. They have no idea that they're being taken advantage of by drug cartels. It's just they're on TikTok. They see an opportunity to make a little bit of money and they take it. And it's a real problem. Wow. I know my wife is a junior high school teacher and uh, the the challenge about, you know, go in the bathroom and break it and break as much as you can. There, we're in a rural part of Idaho, and there were kids who were taking part in that to the point where um, students were not allowed to use the restrooms outside of a very specific uh, time, like lunchtime, and and, that, and teachers standing guard outside the bathrooms. So, you know, somebody starts breaking stuff, they can hear what's going on in there and 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 intervene. But, you know, that's that's pretty crazy that uh, even in in small town America. Um, this stuff still has legs and, and can reach. So what's the yeah. solution? What's the right way to go about this? I I don't really like government stepping in and, and you know, being my dad and oh, you can't go on there. But it sounds like a lot of uh, government entities have said no TikTok on official devices for people who work for the government. Exactly. And that is a power that state governments do have, because if they are the ones directly providing the devices, they have a reasonable say, even for classical liberal liberty minded folks like us it's reasonable for government purchased devices that the government is going to have some sort of say on what you use for on those devices and so there's quite a few states around the country uh, i remember offhand texas maryland iowa i know there are plenty of others uh, that have, where the state governments have come in and said you cannot have tiktok on publicly provided devices and that can be helpful in schools um, because uh, in a lot of districts around the country now, they're providing Chromebooks or some other form of laptop to students, and they'll have to have TikTok blocked or something of that nature um, on those devices. But kids are smart. They're going to use VPNs. So it's, a, it's an imperfect solution. So I think a lot of it is just going to have to fall on teachers to discourage uh, to take initiative and discourage the use of TikTok in the classroom and the use of TikTok by kids more broadly. Because if a teacher is making TikToks with their kids, that tells them that it's fine, that not only is it fine, it's a very good and healthy thing to do, and it's not. So it's all imperfect solutions right now. But I think uh, those are a couple of areas where policymakers and even individual educators can at least help. Well, and I'm I'm going to just speak from my own experience as uh, you know as a former young person. Um, there's also the problem too when you forbid something, it makes it much more appealing. There, I yep. know there were plenty of things that my friends and I did as students in our schools uh, that were expressly because you were told you cannot do that. And I was like, oh yeah, well, we're going to see then how much we can get away with. And I think that's just kind of a part of human nature. It really is. Humans in general do not like to be told what to do. Um, so it, it's one of those areas in which a complete outright ban, as much as I'm, as much as I'm tempted to support it. And I think there's a national security argument, uh, to be made for it, to be for sure. 
Uh, kids, like you said, are stubborn. They don't like being told what to do. And if you tell them not to do something, that just makes them even more likely to do it. But I think modeling good behavior, modeling what a classroom should really look like, sort of emphasizing direct instruction uh, from traditional methods, and then doing whatever you can to keep TikTok off of school-issued devices, I think that'll go away, not in solving the problem, because I'm not sure this is a problem that can be solved, but certainly mitigating the worst of the effects. Well, and and if teachers are the ones who are introducing it, because, you know, hey, this is a great way to connect with my students. I know that I can see your point. It would be hard for them to give up that connection. And I think that would be a very real way to say, look, I'm hip. I'm like you. I'm one of you. But if they can lead out by example, that's probably a powerful way to at least start providing some distance between TikTok and the students. Absolutely. And there's really no other choice at this point, because if things continue the way they are, you're only going to see more and more challenges. I'm sure that they'll just get more and more destructive. So at one point, does the challenge to threaten to bomb your school Mm. become the challenge to actually bomb your school? And the consequences of that kind of thing could be horrifying. I know this is entirely speculation, but considering past history, I'm not sure the slippery slope is entirely unreasonable here. So something has to be done about it. Um, I think any little bit would help. Okay, we've got uh, we've got just about a minute left here. Uh, Gary, I have to ask you this. We're headed into a new year. I know school choice is something you and I have talked about. So I just want to throw one last question at you. And um, how does 2023 look in terms of school choice for various uh, states across the nation? Yeah, um, it's going to be an interesting year. And I think a lot of how it turns out will depend on whether policymakers decide to be smart or if policymakers decide to grift for attention. Um, I think the biggest battlegrounds are probably going to be Texas and Utah, uh, especially Texas, because these are two states where school choice has had a really hard time getting off the ground in the past. But um, in the aftermath of the pandemic, I think there's a real opportunity, but we have to be smart, we have to be diligent, and perhaps willing to make a compromise here and there in order to get it um, on the governor's desk. But I think it's going to be a very, very interesting year for school choice. And from a results standpoint, it could go either way. Okay, Gary Frankel is my guest. Gary, where can people follow you on social media? Uh, I'm most active on Twitter at F-R-A-N-K-E-L-G-A-R-I-O-N. 